church, if you'll just remain standing um, as we prepare to read God's word together this morning. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, making our turn towards the final few weeks of our study in 1 Corinthians. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Oh, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Well, church, we, uh, as I mentioned there before reading, we are now fi- uh, entering our final descent on our, this, this uh, ride, almost a little over a year we've been through uh, 1 Corinthians when we started at last, end of last January, and, uh, and what a turn it is for us this morning. We are going to, in, in a lot of ways, just feast on the gospel together this morning from God's word. It's, it's what we're going to do the next three weeks as we kind of think about the resurrected life. Uh, the life of, of redemption that we have been given in Christ Jesus. And I cannot think of a better way for Paul to end this letter after everything that he's dealt with, all the difficulties he's confronted in the life of the Corinthian church, how he would then turn their hope back yet again to the gospel. It's not in them uh, fixing themselves. It's not in them uh, uh, tweaking their worship services. It's not in them uh, uh, focusing on, uh, on self-improvement projects, but it's in them returning back to the proper foundation of their lives. And so it prompts a question for me this morning, something that I would ask you to consider and just think about it as I ask the question. What is the ground of your life? What is the foundation of your life? How would you answer that? Take a minute. Don't be hasty. Um, Many of us will want to instantly go to the Sunday school answer, right? Um, But I would ask you then a second question related to that. What evidence would you look to if someone were to examine you? If you were sitting down having coffee with Paul, for instance, what would you say to him that would give evidence to that ground of your life? Now, I would also ask a question once you've decided what that answer is. Now sit down with someone else different. Sit down with your unbelieving neighbor. The one who doesn't go to church, perhaps, one who maybe has been a part of church but has fallen away from the church, and they know you probably better than you think they know you. They, they see your rhythms. They know what you're about. They know what you are invested in in your life, and how would they deduce the ground of your life? Now, I understand the weight of a question that I've just asked you, and I know that there on some level that can incite some level of maybe perhaps shame or guilt in us. 
But I simply ask those questions not to induce those things. That's not what they're for. They are there to help us consider the, and, and to be perennially aware of the ground on which you and I say we're building our lives off of. And if that is indeed true, and if it is indeed visible in our life, that's what Paul has been trying to do with the Corinthian church. The details may look different in your life than, than mine. Uh, that's not the point. It's not that we want, like we said before, in worship uniformity in the Christian life. That can look very different from one believer to the next. But if our lives are built on the ground of Christ, and this is what Paul was wanting to now circle back to in these last two chapters of his letter, if our ground is built on Christ and him crucified, then at some point the beauty of the cross of Christ will radiate from our lives in varying ways in such a way that other people go, yeah, that's, that's them. That's, that's what they're about. That's what makes them tick. Well, today, again, as I mentioned, we're down that final few weeks, four weeks left. We're going to spend three weeks in chapter 15, and we're going to do one week in chapter 16. And then we're going to head into a brief series at the end of this, uh, kind of leading into Easter. The, we're going to call it the final days of Jesus. We're going to walk through a couple of the gospel passages there to kind of consider those kinds of things. Because it could be a very well, good setup, if you, a good setup for us from the end of this book, this letter, to move into that as we prepare for Easter together. And so I hope these things will marry very well in the weeks ahead for us. But see, Paul has been, uh, he's returning now in chapter 15 to the magna, magna opus, magnum opus of his letter, which he unpacked in chapter one. And if you go back to chapter one, you'll find, and just kind of survey it, here's what you find. Verse two, you see this letter, to the church, he says, which by the way, is a loaded term in and of itself, to the church of God in Corinth, again, a distinct people called the church, marked by what? That they're sanctified in Christ, it says there in verse two, called together as saints. Now, you just stop and pause about everything that's packed into that verse. Here's a few things that you should be taking notice of. Again, as I mentioned, church of God. Paul is making some assessment of this group of people, that they actually are a church. With all the mess that we've unpacked since chapter 2 all the way up to chapter 14, he still is in, he's engaging them as people who have made a confession in Christ. They are the church. And he says later on, sanctified in Christ and called together. That one of the things that we know the church is, is a people who are being sanctified, they're being purified, they're being changed, they're being transformed by the work of the Spirit in their life as it relates to running downstream of what? That confession of who Jesus is, what he has accomplished for us. And therefore we are called together. This is why the church is so important to gospel ministry. You can't separate our participation in the body of Christ in the membership, being visibly members of a church, you can't separate it from any intention to say the gospel matters in our life. And the, the first thing that someone's going to say that if the gospel matters is if, is if number one, your garage is empty on Sunday mornings. i got to be honest with you. That's got to be at least the one thing that's going to tell the world that's important to you is your garage empty or your driveway empty on Sunday morning because you've made that this such an important part of that. That doesn't make you a Christian to go to church, of course, but it does say something about who Jesus is to you if you are. And then you get down to verses 4 through 9 in this wonderful chapter, and Paul confirms the evidences of their fellowship, the evidences of grace that is being, uh, t- that is being demonstrated in life. And he grades it not on their actions, as I said a minute ago, but he's grading it on these simple confessions. 
Verse 4, he gives thanks for the grace of God that was given to them. So he's affirming from his vantage point, at least some fruit there, there's been grace given to this group of people. No matter how messy they have been, no matter how much we keep continue to pull back, he is confirming as much as he can through the work of the Spirit that grace has been conferred to this people. Verse 6, then, his, then he then talks about the testimony of Christ that is among them, that has been confirmed among them. Like People who spent time with these people, they can say, there's, there's something about Jesus that radiates from these people. And then verse 9, God is faithful to those whom he called to fellowship. So then God's the one who's keeping these people. God has given his grace. He's shown his grace. It's been confirmed with the people who've engaged with them in various ways. And it is certainly, from Paul's vantage point, a people who, have been, um, who, who God has been faithful to, and he's keeping them his people. And what a wonderful, what a wonderful place to rest, yes? That no matter what you brought in here this morning, that you and I can know, we can sit and rest in the fact that it's, it's not us that keeps ourselves, although we are, there is a sense in which we must be, uh, be, be, be um, uh, committed and, and faithful to what God has called us to, but it is God who keeps his people. So then this magnum opus of the gospel of Paul's letter to his beloved brothers and sisters in the church, like this, like, like this is a church he personally planted and he is building this church as best as he can on that message, on that foundation. That's the foundation. I hope you can say when you answer that question that gospel really is the foundation of my life. And I'm seeking to do that for better or for worse. And for this particular church, how needed was it for them to be reminded of this? Back in chapter 1 and what we're going to return to in chapter 15. Right? Because of what? We, we've seen all, all of it. You, you, let me just give you a quick flyby. There were divisions in this church. I mean, how many churches do we know of? You get reports of, I get reports almost all week, every week of friends whose churches are just, you know, they're struggling. Or perhaps, you know, we, we don't know them personally and they just, we just hear word of a church that's just going through a difficult time, divisions. And their focus is off the gospel. Focus is off the person and work of Jesus. There's a lack of trust in the Corinthian church, trust in the power of the gospel. And, and there's an unwillingness to embrace the full folly, the embarrassment of the gospel in their lives. And so they lack trust in what that cross does in their new identity in Christ. That's, that is so evident as you continue to walk through the letter. There's a lack of trust in the apostolic authority of Paul and the other apostles. There was a group of people in the church. We know that we're out there stirring up things, and they're just constantly questioning in some ways so they can elevate themselves into the offices in the church. We saw this in chapter 4. But yet Paul still sticks to his guns in chapter 4. And he says, no, 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 no. Paul commends them, follow our example. The Lord has given us authority in this moment. We love you. Don't fall stray to false teaching, which is, again, what the Corinthian church often did. And then, of course, then there's rampant sin, right? Dullness, the sin at least, to deal with things in the life of the church. Sexual sin, lawsuits, unbiblical reasons for divorce, unwillingness to draw sharper lines between idolatry of the world and what it means to be a Christian. There was just all these things that Paul says, man, I wish for you, I wish for you to reconsider your, uh, your, your approach to these things so that you can draw a sharper, uh, vivid contrast between the people of God called the church at Corinth and the pagan world called Corinth that they are living in. 
That was Paul's main concern as he's getting all this information from, uh, about this church from himself and even things he himself had heard. So the question that we began this, this sermon with is very important, isn't it? Like, what is the ground of our life? In essence, this is what Paul has been asking through this letter. So now we come to chapter 15 and he's making this full turn and he will spend chapter 15 helping us, taking this Corinthian church and taking those who read this letter like us this morning and to take us on this deeper dive into the gospel life, into the resurrected life. And so we're going to look at chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 as kind of this kind of fountainhead on this topic of the gospel this morning so we can feast deeply on it. And here's my summary of that. That God's church, the church's ongoing mission and witness must be grounded in routine renewal in the gloriousness of the gospel. Let me say that again. The church's ongoing mission, our ongoing life as the church and our witness as the church, it must routinely be grounded and renewed in the gloriousness of the gospel. And that's what I want us to feast on. A very simple, straightforward gospel message for us to just, oh man, just enjoy eating every morsel of it we can this morning. So, Paul's book ended his letter, right? Gospel, chapter 1, ends it with the gospel here this morning in this chapter 15. And there's three things here in these first 11 verses that I want us to consider. Number one, the need for renewing our gospel confidence. We see this in verses 1 through 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The CSB, um, the Christian Standard Version, which I like to use as, an, as a secondary um, uh, version of the Bible, is is, I think, very clear and very helpful here in this idea of, I would remind you. It, it, the CSB puts it, I would want to make clear to you. So his goal here is that now I would remind you, now I want to make clear to you on, on what? Based on all that mess that he's been confronting. I need you to go back here now and I want you to make, I want to make clear to you the gospel. And I just love this. I love this is what Paul's heart is. It's, he is making clear, as we've already said, the gospel. And and we say this often here at Grace Church and we will continue to sing this through the heights, but you can never get over the gospel in the church. Any church that can get over the gospel gets over Jesus and gets over what the whole church is about in the first place. And that's why churches eventually drift into different places. No, we can never, ever, ever get over the gospel. And so Paul begins the letter with the gospel and he's going to end it with the gospel. And he said, I want you to make it clear of this. And he's coming to them and saying, like, there's, you don't just need the gospel in the first five minutes of your Christian life. You just don't need it so that you can break a confession, walk an aisle, get dunked in water, and you're, all of a sudden you're good. No, you need the gospel every second and every day of your life until Jesus returns. You need to constantly remind it of that. And that's why he uses these descriptors that follow, doesn't he? What is this gospel that we need to reconsider? Well, it's one that is preached. It's one that is preached. It's one that must be declared everywhere. It's one for all peoples of all times and in all places. You know, we live in a time where we, you know, we were rightly concerned about the erosion of our culture. And we, and we, and you hear us have, we have conversations about it among us around the water cooler, I guess, every week. And that's fine. 
But in all of our good efforts to, to deal with all the multiplicity of issues in the world, Christians need to be careful that in all those efforts, we don't draw unnecessary biblical boundaries around the gospel that don't belong there. And what I mean by that is that I've seen so much of this come up in various converse, uh, conversations surrounding Christians, like how we involve ourselves in the nation and politics and nationalism and all those kinds of things. But, and then we say, well, then, then what ends up happening is, is there's been this rise in what we call Christian kinism. You may not know that word. Christian kinism is basically saying God does make a distinction between ethnicities, and therefore it's okay for ethnicities to have their own communities, and we need to keep, and it's okay if we have our own ways of doing things. It doesn't, it's not necessarily in trying to be implicitly racist in any way, but it kind of, what it does is it creates an unfair boundary that the Bible does not draw. It just does not draw that. It twists the views of the gospel that comes out of this, and, and, and it's trying to reestablish the church on, on foundations and build church on foundations that just simply do not exist in the scriptures. There's always going to be challenges with multiculturalism. There's always going to be challenges with those kind of things, and it's hard in cultures who to deal with these, like ours. We have to think through those things, but we must never, brothers and sisters, no matter where we are in the life of the culture, we must never, remember, never forget the fact that the gospel is a gospel that is preached. It is one that is to all peoples of all places and all times, and it is to be preached to them in such a way that, is, that we woo them into the church. And so wherever God sends you this afternoon or this week, this week, wherever, whoever God puts you in front of, no matter what their bound, whatever their cultural or ethnic kind of uh, uh, surroundings may be, you and I must be willing to, no matter what happens, bring, make room in this church for them if this is where God would have them to be. That's where we want to be. And that's why then what happens is, is we, show, we, we actually share and declare to the world something so much more beautiful. Because we could actually be a place that is not unified under any other thing, but under Jesus, under what he has accomplished for us. So the gospel is one that is preached, but it's also, the, he says, the gospel is one in which we have received. It's not enough just to say we preach and we declare a certain uh, truth uh, claim, but not only do we preach it, but we receive it. And the idea here, of course, is faith and repentance, repentance and faith, whichever order you want to put that in. And repentance is that turn from the former life of sin and rebellion. And faith is that turning to Christ for rescue and forgiveness from our sin and rebellion. But it's, again, it's not a, just a one-stop shop kind of situation. It's not just something you do when you walk down an aisle one day. It's not something you do just to come down here and have, you know, everyone's kind of weeping at the weeping bench. It is a everyday receiving of the truth of the gospel in various ways in our life so that we're living out, as Luther said, faith and repentance. Uh, you guys have heard me say this, and I, I, I do um, uh, reference this quite often, but the first of the 95 theses from Luther was that all of life is faith and repentance. So that means the gospel is something that we are routinely going back to and we're wrestling with and we're thinking through it fresh for our life. It doesn't mean we're getting resaved, of course. It just means that we are constantly going back to, the, to the, the core message, the foundation of everything that we are. And that's the second and the third point he makes there. It's on which we stand. In other words, the gospel is foundational. We stand on it. It's the ground in which we alluded to earlier in the question. We build everything on it. Everything on it. Not just what we choose to build on it, but everything we own on it. We form our view of the world on it. And that's why we still have to do the complicated and, and, and difficult work of engaging the world in which we live in in a, in a critical and thoughtful way with the love of Christ. 
And we do have to say what is true and what is not true. We do have to confront what is error and sin according to what the Bible has called us to. We build everything off the foundation of the truth of the gospel. That is essential. So the gospel is preached, it's received, it's foundational. But brothers and sisters, it is more than that. It is the gospel in which you are being saved, Paul says. And I love the way that he phrases that. You are being saved. And what it means is there's a place in which you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus and we are saved already, but there's a place in which the gospel should always be saving us, right? It should always be renewing us, should always be reforming us, should always be changing us. It's the place in which we are always being saved by the gospel. In what ways is this saving gospel? Um, is it, is this is a saving gospel. Well, we're going to hit it a little bit more in our second point, but I'll just go ahead and, and, and get to the punchline. The gospel is a saving event. It actually happened in history that rescues us not only from sin, but from the just wrath of God. It's not just sweeping things up under the rug for us and God says, okay, you're all good now. Go on about your business. It is, it's, we are being saved from his wrath, his judgment. And how does he do that? Well, again, we'll see this in our point here in just a moment, but it's through his son, Jesus. And we say this, this triad several times uh, throughout Sunday morning sermons. Christ lives the perfect life, lived the perfect life. The life of full obedience to God that Adam, our great-grandfather, did not live on our behalf. And therefore, all of us who are born in Adam are not able to live. Christ lived that perfect life for us. But not only that, he gave that perfect life. He died in that as an atonement, big word, right? Propitiation, another big word there, but don't get too frightened by it. It's okay. Like that means he substituted his life for us. He gave it as a ransom, as a payment to God so that you and I wouldn't have to bear the wrath of our own failure, our own rebellion, our own sin. He died in our place as a sacrificial lamb for the penalty of sin. But it's even better than that. And again, what we're getting into next week and the following week, he rose from the dead. He is the embodiment of all it is to be overcoming death and into a new life. He, he defeats death. He put death to death. We'll see that later on in a couple weeks. He puts death to that. He conquers death and sins reign over humanity and all who turn to Christ in faith and repentance are now part of that new humanity. That's what we're about. See, then he comes to this, these words and he begins to make this transition. He starts putting a conditional statement around it. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So then... That leads us to the aspect of this. Not in our own effort, which he does, he'll talk about his own transformation of the gospel later in this text, but there is a point in which we must hold fast, we must cling with, to, to, the, to the truth of the gospel every moment of every, se- every second of every de- moment of every day. It's everything to us. It's the, it, the full weight of your assurance to get up out of bed this morning is in Christ. The full assurance of your identity and who you are and, who you're, and, and, the, and the hope that you have for your future is in Christ. And so he gives this warning to the Corinthian church, a warning that every church should we press on into our own hearts, of vain belief. Unless you believed in vain, there is a pattern of vain belief. 
And those, that's kind of haunting words, isn't it? Unless you believed in vain. It's kind of scary, isn't it? There's a kind of belief, though, I think Paul's dealing with, and I think Jesus confirms in his own right, that's not real belief. It's vain belief. It's fake belief. It's self-deluded belief. And Jesus spoke of this at least in two places. I'm sure many other places, but I will lead to at least two. One is, remember when he says that some of you will say that, Lord, Lord, and you have no part in me. And then he also, in Mark 4, he talks about the parable of the sower and the seeds that are sown on different ground. And some started to show life, but then they eventually, the sun scorched it and all these other things. It fell on rocky ground and eventually it just burned up and, or just anxieties of the world got a hold of them and they fell away. Uh, Jesus acknowledges the fact that there are people who will be collected into the, the visible church of, of, of his, the visible nature of his church and they will be, their anxieties will crush them because they have not put the full weight of their life on the gospel. They haven't done it. Now, we must remember that in doing, putting our full weight of our gospel, that's really still not on us. We'll see in Paul's own testimony, it was by the grace of God in him that helped him stand. But I get ahead of myself there. So this outlines right here in these first two verses the contours of the gospel life, isn't it? It, it, It's a daily routine of building and shaping all of our life around the personal work of Jesus. And this is what Paul is commending to this wayward Corinthian church, this very messy church. He said, brothers and sisters, what you need is to go back and reinspect the beauty of your foundation of your life, building it and shaping it on the, li- on the life of the person and work of Jesus. And then he commends them, if you're struggling with that, which some in the Corinthian church were, if you're struggling with the truthfulness of this gospel, well, let me, let's examine it. That's the second point this morning, examining the truthful, truthfulness of the gospel event itself, verses 5 through 8. I'm sorry, 3 through 8, excuse me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance of the Scriptures. I'll stop right there. Like, Paul does not invent something of his own making. He doesn't invent this in his mind. He says very clearly, this, I'm giving you what was delivered to me. I received this. I'm not inventing anything new. The gospel is not some invention in Paul's mind. And you'll find this if you pay attention to some people who will try to pit Pauline theology, like Paul's letters with like the gospels. And they'll say, well, Paul, man, he he adds to things that Jesus wouldn't have said. That's just pure nonsense. Pure and utter nonsense. No, Paul's very clear here. He's passing on what has been delivered to him. And what has been delivered to him has come from the apostles. It certainly comes from his encounter with Jesus on the road of Damascus. And, he was, and, and what was taught to him by other believers who had already started to put their faith in Christ. He's delivering what he has received. Not some invention in his own mind. But this is, and so Paul is not here doing something different. His letters, though, they're much more doctrinal and rich with these kinds of things. They are no different than what Jesus taught himself. There is no distinction. In fact, we know that he's not doing something different than the rest of the apostles because in Acts 15, Paul's ministry is essentially brought before the other apostles and leaders in Jerusalem, his ministry to the Gentiles. And what is the end of the matter? Well, the end of the matter is to affirm what? His own ministry and to confirm that he actually is preaching the one true gospel. And they all said yes and amen. Essentially what the Jerusalem council was all about. 
Go with God, preach the Gentiles, show them Christ, put their faith and lean in Jesus and Jesus alone. So what is this gospel that Paul has received? Well, he says it here in verses 3 through 5. Christ died and Christ was risen. Has risen. Christ died testifies to the fact that Christ was a real flesh and blood human being who lived a life and he died. He, he wasn't just some imagination. He wasn't just some mirage that people invented in their minds. He actually was a real human being and his death had a purpose. It wasn't just the purpose of the, the religious leaders who had him killed, but it was the purpose of God for him. We see this in Acts chapter 2. It was God who put him to death, right? He sent his son. What? So that the sins of the world may be paid for. His death had a purpose, it was made the, and it was made the point of the Christian witness in every place since then. This is why this message has never, has never changed since that time. That's why the church has held on to this. But it's more than just he died, again, as a substitute, as we mentioned earlier, but he has risen, as we mentioned earlier. The fact that Christ has risen and that his testimony has survived for two, more than two millennia is quite amazing, isn't it? With as much as the world has changed, somehow or another, that message continues. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be like, go back to that and, 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 and rest in that. That we rest in a message that for whatever, whatever's been thrown at the gospel, whatever's been thrown at Christianity, that message still lives. It's still being transmitted through churches across this globe this morning. And quite simply, and honestly, this is why then it's important that we, that we not only just, we just do our own work here in our own little holy huddle here, but then we stand with the rest of the churches, as we mentioned earlier, through creeds and catechisms and confessions, not because those things are above the Bible, but because they're, they're faithful summaries of it. That's why. Because then we know we're passing on the same faith that everyone behind us is passed on. That's important. That's important. It helps us remind that we are part of the historicity of the orthodox message of Christ. Christ died. Christ has risen. That's why we've put this little statement in here in the Lord's Supper after we take the Lord's Supper, or actually, yeah, after we take the Lord's Supper, or maybe we're doing it before, I can't remember now, <laughs> sorry. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ shall come again. Why? Because that's the same message the church has been declaring since Christ. And how do we know that this message is worth holding fast to, as Paul talks about in chapter 2? Well, he gives then some just tangible evidence. Um, Peter believed it. And the twelve believed it. Then there was more than 500 people. Some are still alive in Paul's day. They believed it. James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe it, came to believe it. Along with the apostles as their ministry developed post-Jesus' um, ascension. And then for Paul, I believed it. And you know where I came from. I persecuted the church. I had a man, I, I stood by and watched Stephen get stoned. And I threw my full weight of support behind that. But I believe this message now. So we're not just talking about a few folks. And we're not talking about a few folks who just lived in a room somewhere and they crafted this whole, okay, so now that we do now with this, here's what Jesus did. So here, let's kind of craft out a message. Let's craft out a whole religious movement. That's not what happened here. No, 
We're talking about people who had everything to lose in their life by propagating a message that nobody wanted. I mean, even people who followed Jesus eventually walked away because he didn't give them what they wanted. They had everything to lose. But they said, no, this message is important. And I'll live on it and I'll stand on it. And he's committing the Corinthian church and he's committing us today to do the same. And so you can see like how this undergirds our confidence today, right? That was the whole main point of the earlier point, our confidence in the gospel. Why? Because number one, the gospel is an event. It actually happened. It's historical. It was witnessed. It was passed on. And many are part of the line that stood stood on that message as witnesses and testimony, and it's undeniable. I mean, how many people have have this has this testimony impacted in in different literature we have uh, today that was not expressly Christian? But there's still there's just everywhere you go in, in, in human history, something someone has encountered what has happened in Jerusalem through that man Jesus Christ. So we're not alone. We might be 2,000 years removed from it, but we're not alone. We are part of a long line of people who's changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we simply, until Jesus returned, we're going to continue handing that on and committing people to believe in it. It's not a fluke. But I want to get into this last point for a moment because I think there's even more here because you're probably thinking, okay, well, I have seen so many parts of my life where I've just not seen the full like, transformational power of the gospel. And, that, and, and I get it. Like, we, we go through these seasons where we're up and down, right? The, the cycles of the Christian life. And Paul then says, it's not just that it's historically foundational. It's not just that you stand on and preach it. But listen, let me just tell you how it's changed my life. And so that's our third point. We need to learn to experience the powerful transformation of the gospel of grace. And that's what Paul's going to give in his own testimony here in verses 9 through 11 here as we finish up thinking about this passage. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. So there's your confidence, friends, not you. <laughs> no, it was, it was the grace of God that was with me. Whether then I was, it was I or they, so we preached. Talking about the apostles, and you believed. And so he's talking to the, this, this Corinthian church. Whether you're trusting in me or trusting in one of the other apostles' message, if you're believing in this gospel... And you're believing on this, it can change all that other mess that you've been allowing to toss you around to and fro for all these years. And so Paul just speaks of the unworthiness of his present position. He doesn't hold it out as something that of privilege, does he? His apostleship is a grace-given calling. It is God who gives the church its leaders and the leaders that we need in every age, right? It's Paul who could, uh, Paul could have never imagined this in his life, this transforming encounter he would have on that road to Damascus and how that would change the whole angle, the whole direction, the whole future of his life. See, our position in Christ has nothing to do with your or my earthly standing or your, yours or mine um, a suitability to the kingdom of God. It's God who ransoms undeserving rebels like Paul like you, like me, 
And he places us, places him, places you, places me, in the kingdom's work as he pleases. And that is Paul's testimony here. He doesn't hold himself up and saying, look at me, look at me. He's saying, no, look at Jesus through me. Look at Jesus through me. Look at the grace of God through me. And so his response to his calling is just that. It's grace-driven effort, isn't it? No, I mean, just I love that. That's one of my favorite verses. No, I worked harder than any of them. All of his predecessors, his colleagues, if you will, the other apostles. I worked harder than all of those guys. But he wasn't bringing the attention back to himself. But it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. Sister, like if you're, if you're struggling this morning and you're like, I don't know how to take the next step, I'm just pleading with you to, to, to stop worrying about you and start worrying about and start, and start looking to Jesus. Um, I think it's, I don't know if I got this right. I know, I know Spurgeon has at least quoted this, but I think it comes from somebody else. For every look at your sin, for every one look at your sin, take two looks at Jesus. It's the only way to live the Christian life. It's the only way to live the Christian life. Because as soon as you get absorbed in you and your situation, and all you then begin to do is look at you. Stop looking at you. Tom, stop looking at Tom. Start looking at Jesus. That's Paul's message here. It's not, not me, but grace of God in me. See, many of us get saved and we feel we have to prove our faith to whether it is to God or maybe other believers or whoever. And if they need to try to somehow or another prove their worth to God, this is not what we see in Paul. Like the joy of his conversion, right? The, the, and the appointment of, uh, as an apostle motivated him to give all that he had to the heavenly calling. Whether he was an apostle or not, really mattered nothing to him. But he didn't do it as a means of self worth, his worth was fully secure in Jesus but to testify to the grace of God that had been bestowed on him and demonstrate that grace, to radiate that grace to all who would encounter him wherever he went. So you might ask yourself, what is, what's in this for us? Oh, great, I love hearing about Paul's testimony. What, where, where, where do I begin this? Well, I think it's just simple, right? Like the same can and should be realized in our lives. Okay, of course, we're not called to be apostles. We know that. That cease. We talked about that in chapter 14, okay? But we're talking about, it's not about his calling. It's not his position. It's about his standing in Jesus. His position in Jesus. So we preach the gospel because we want others to find that new life. We receive the gospel daily through repentance and faith. And with all of God's grace in us, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we're just going to learn to stand on that gospel. And so this morning, that's, that's the gospel feast that stands before each one of us here this morning. And, and you know we take the Lord's Supper each and every week. And I'm, I, I, it is humbling to know that we get to enjoy this meal together as a body of Christ. But for this morning at least, for me, I, I can't imagine being more thrilled. More thrilled to come and enjoy this table of Christ together with you. Because we get to say, through taking this table to the world, we're not our own anymore. We are Christ's. We are Jesus' people. <clears throat> Saved by Him. His death, His resurrection, and with 
God's help, we're going to spend the rest of our days building on that foundation. Amen? Father, help us this morning as we consider and, and, and apply all these things we've heard this morning from your word and we've thought about. God, if there are people in this room who need to get, you know, who need to maybe bring their struggle to you and have the need to, in repentance, I pray that they'll have the opportunity even now in this quietness of this moment so they can come to this table with full delight and joy. There are people in this room, as Casey mentioned earlier, that just need to do business with one another. Maybe you, God, would prompt that this morning. All because we want to learn from the lessons, the hard lessons the Corinthian church had to learn. That we might be a sweet aroma to the world around us by the way in which we fellowship and ground and relate to one another in the person and work of Jesus. God, as Jim comes here in just a moment, our team comes, prepare our hearts now to, to, to enjoy this meal together, and we love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.